This episode of the Screen Tripper podcast was first broadcast in December 2016. For more information, make sure you check out www.culturetrip.com. Welcome to the first ever Screen Tripper podcast. I'm Kasam Luch, the film and TV editor, and this week we're going to be taking a look back at 2016. First up, we take a look back at Rogue One, a Star Wars story set to be the biggest film of the year, and we went to the red carpet here in London and spoke to all the stars. First up, Felicity Jones told us what it was like to join the Star Wars universe, and then director Gareth Edwards, famous for monsters, told us about bringing Star Wars to the big screen. And finally, Alan Turdick, the comedy hero from Serenity and Firefly, told us about bringing a robotic character to the big screen and bringing the accent from London. What was it like when you found out you were going to be in Star Wars? Um, well, I remember whooping. Gareth Edwards called me on the telephone and said, we'd love you to play Jinnah. So I sort of went, oh, that's awesome. But then at the same time, I was a little bit nervous because I knew I'd have to start going to the gym a lot and training and that I would never be out of sweatpants for seven months. And, uh, and that was true. That was how it was for the entirety of shooting. Mm-hmm. Your character is actually quite reluctant at first to join the rebellion. Um, what, what's the turning point for her? Uh, well, it's when she, it's, it's, well, it's, her, it's her, the fa- her father's legacy that he passes on to her. I think that's the moment when, when it really engages for her. And, but she's had this deep hatred of the empire. You know, that is deep, deep, deep down. And, and she will do everything to, to, to bring them down. But it, it's there more in the background and it only crystallizes with, with what happens to her father. Mm-hmm. Were there any real life inspirations for you in terms of building that character? Uh, yes, there were. I mean, I'm always looking constantly, you know, you're a bit of a magpie and you're looking at different uh, people. And I mean, obviously, someone like um, Sigourney Weaver in Alien, she, I remember watching that and thinking that was a great reference. But then also Harrison Ford. I, there were certain sequences that I was looking at in Rogue One and I thought, what would Harrison Ford do in this moment? So I went back and I, and I watched his, I watched his, obviously, his Star Wars films, but then also, you know, watching other films he's done. And he's got such a playfulness. And, and I guess somewhere between those two people was where I was trying to find Jin. What is it like being part of the Star Wars universe? I don't know if I'm part of the Star Wars universe. You sort of get to play in it for about two years and then you have to go home back to England. Um, and so I'd love to stay. That's the heartbreaking thing about coming to the end is that, you, that I can't go back to Yavin anymore or, you know, be on the Death Star. And, and so it was kind of a dream come true, to be honest. I mean, everyone dreams of being part of Star Wars and I got to make one and so I, I keep expecting to wake up and be like a five-year-old kid with my Star Wars pajamas and it was all a dream you know you get to play with some iconic things such as stormtroopers and even the Death Star as you mentioned I mean did you have fun obviously with those what was the most fun thing for you in terms of that everything was fun I mean this it was kind of like the whole roller coaster ride of making this film was like you have the greatest moment of your life and then like it's really stressful and then oh my god we're on an X-Wing and and so it's a complete mixed bag of emotions and there were many highlights. Classic one was filming with Felicity and, and, and Luke Skywalker turns up, Mark Hamill, on set. And I've never met him in my life. And we go up to say hello and he's wearing a Godzilla T-shirt from the film I did before. And, and you just start thinking, is this real? Like, it, um, This is like virtual reality or something. It can't be happening. And we know this is a prequel to A New Hope. Um, was it helpful in a way to have that as an endpoint where you knew you were going to end up? Yeah, we had like the reverse problem that you normally have in a movie. Normally, someone that comes up with a great concept... And it's like, oh my God, how do we make, where does this go? How do we end it? We had an ending that we were really excited about. And then it was, okay, how do we begin it? So we, it was like backing into the problem, you know, which was complete opposite to a normal film. We see some of the characters from the previous films recreated with CG. Uh, how, how was that process? Did you enjoy doing that as well? 
Um, without spoiling it for people... I won't say who. Industrial Light Magic did some incredible stuff on this film. Uh, technology, like Star Wars is like synonymous with pushing the boundaries of technology. And so it felt like, come on, we've got to go for it. And John Knoll really takes credit for that. He was very confident that we could pull all this off and... A lot of people were nervous, but um, ILM did an amazing job. And I, it's, we were in the premiere of the day, and it was just like a gasp, an audible gasp, when a certain moments happened. And, and it was such a thrill. It was like, you know, you had to be careful not to tear up. It really meant the world. Were you nervous at all? I wasn't. I wasn't as much as you'd think you should be. Um, I suddenly got nervous today when they lift the embargo on all the reviews. <laughs> Because like my phone just went, did, 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 and like hundreds of reviews come in, and you've been waiting two and a half years to, to get a reaction. Like we haven't shown this film to anyone. Um, I think probably in the entire world, in the whole of Disney and Lucasfilm, like 200 people had seen it, you know, that worked on it, and and then suddenly like it's going to go out to millions and millions, and and so it, that's the bit that got a little bit like nerve wracking. But I, it seems like people are uh, responding to it, so. Mm-hmm. We've obviously followed your career from Monsters and then Godzilla, as you mentioned. And at that point, we thought it couldn't get any bigger. Of course it did. Um, what do you do next? Um, well, I think there's going to be the second coming of Christ onto Earth. And I'm going to do a documentary with Jesus and then go into space and live on another planet. Or so, I don't know what you can do to top Star Wars. It's, it, it, this is kind of as good as it gets. And so uh, hopefully it's not downhill after this. But um, I am excited about the future. I mean, there's amazing possibilities that come from making a film like this and and so i i'm i'm looking forward to this threshold and life before star wars life after star wars now the character you play k2so um there was a danger of him maybe being a bit too comical but i think it works wonderfully how did you play that character i tried to play him as true as possible as just a character that uh happened to be funny in moments you know he was like a child who you know, might insult someone accidentally. You know, he does at one point say, nobody likes you. And, you know, he's a little he's a little sassy about it, but he's also telling the truth. No one likes you. No one does. Um, so he was funny being himself. Uh, I think the trick was just don't make jokes, you know. It's just be the character. And who he is is kind of funny in, in situations that are uh, very high stakes. Did you get any input on the lines? Because they are genuinely funny. We had a lot of fun on set. So, you know, I would do the lines that are written, and then by the third take, they got that. Uh, And I would just kind of go off book and play around. So a lot of the lines that I have, you know, the first part is theirs, and then the last part isn't, or just replace the line by something else. And I was surprised that they put a lot of it in the movie. I hadn't thought. There's a couple of the lines that I, I honestly still am beside myself that they put that in the movie. I'm so happy. It makes me so happy. And how happy were you to join the Star Wars universe? I think I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to hearing everybody's reaction to it because that's where Star Wars lives, is in the fans and, in, and you know, that's where a movie, you really get a sense of it. Uh, when we watch it, I love it, but I'm biased evidently. And finally, where did you get the voice from? Because it is a very distinctive voice. Right. Well, he's English. He was um, uh, with the Empire, so he has an English accent. And, um, but he's fairly simple, you know, he's like a boy, a child, somewhat. So he's petulant, you know. Why do you get that and I don't? I want one, you know, he's, he's like that, you know. It's, um, it's just kind of came out of the character. It's interesting, is this sarcasm built into his programming or is that something that's happened or developed over time for him? Right in the beginning, uh, Cassian says, you've met 
Kate to you already, but Cassian comes in. I've just met Jin, and he says, I'm sorry. He doesn't even hear what I have to say. She's like, did you meet the droid? And she says, yeah, he's real charming. He goes, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. He just kind of says whatever he wants. So if you have a character that that's what people say about you, he just says whatever he wants. I'm sorry. They're already a, he's apologizing for me without even knowing what I've said. Then you have a lot of freedom. Another highlight of 2016 was Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the latest film from J.K. Rowling's sprawling Harry Potter epic. There is obviously huge excitement about this film. J.K. Rowling is deeply involved this time around. Before she took a step back, this time around she is the screenwriter as well as the author of the books. So we spoke to Dan Fogler, Alison Sedol and Eddie Redmayne and they told us about what it was like to work with the author J.K. Rowling on this film. What's it like stepping into a world that is already established but playing new characters for the, for most people who are watching it at home? I think it's pre- pretty thrilling, uh, yeah. mixed with a little bit of um, uh, nervousness, I suppose. But what was kind of what I loved was because we're all so familiar with the Potterverse and those films, and it, it was it was things like the moving posters, you know, from all those films yeah. when you'd see the wanted posters and you see the, and when we would actually sort of go down and there on set would be all those posters and we'd be doing those. I, I, it was the small things like that, like the small prop minutia stuff that got me ridiculously overexcited. It, it was yeah. like coming to a really fun familiar playground but knowing that you you have a safety net because no one has any expectations about your character so you're just there to to be in the in the world and it's just so exhilarating right absolutely and you have freedom because they're characters that are not written in the books so you have we we all had this ability to bring what we thought and felt with these characters that we all loved so much. We got to kind of explore them, which was such a gift, really, because, you know, J.K. Rowling writes such beautiful stories and people and things, Mm. and yet there there was actually a place that was just for us to bring our love to it, which was really cool. And exploring these characters with J.K., because obviously she's involved Mm. in this one heavily, so um, what's it like having her involved directly in a project? That was brilliant. I found what was amazing was the last couple of films I've done I'd played real people and when you're playing real people you have diaries or you get to meet the, the person and, and so I thought with this how does one go about it And but of course you forget that J.K. Rowling has such an encyclopedic knowledge of all of her characters mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. though these characters we see for a section, you know, this moment this this sort of few days in New York she has their backstory, everything yeah. about yeah. them and so basically instead of having to go and read all the books and do all the sort of research you just went and spoke to J.K. Rowling for an hour or two and and, and she was and that was the funnest part I think was there was so much fun but we got to to sit with her and she was so excited to share it you know and, and um, just that energy feeding off of that energy is just like the best Newt has already been established in, in the Potterverse in, in some way so mm. what new elements do we get to see from him in this film well, I think in the Potterverse, he had been. You knew that he had written this book, and uh, which was in the Hogwarts Library, fantastic piece, and where to find them. And in at the beginning of the film, he spent a year in the field, sort of collating information for the book. Uh, but what you kind of get to discover is a guy who is he comes from a sort of slightly complicated background, and he is obsessed with his creatures and has great love for them. And he has stumbled into New York, having spent literally a year in the middle of nowhere, and that city in the roaring 20s is just for him it's just like sort of sensory overload and 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 some stuff starts going down that causes chaos 
And finally, J.K. Rowling herself joined us and spoke about the film and writing duties on Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. My heroes are always people who feel themselves to be set apart, stigmatized or othered. That's at the heart of most of what I write. And it's certainly at the heart of this movie. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was a textbook that Harry Potter used at school. While I was writing Potter, I became quite interested in Newt's commander. So I knew quite a lot about Newt. He's been traveling the world studying magical creatures. He calls himself a magizoologist. First trip to America? Yes. Must get that fixed. Newt's creatures live in this magical case. You open it up, you can go down. It's an amazing space. Newt feels more at home with creatures than he does with human beings. Come on, give me a smile. Newt walks into a society he doesn't really understand. Mr. Scrander, do you know anything about the wizarding community in America? I know that you have rather backwards laws about relations with non-magic people. That you're not meant to befriend them, you can't marry them, which seems wildly absurd to me. You can marry him. And then Jacob accidentally opens Newt's case full of magical creatures. Hey, Mr. English guy, I think your egg is hatching. So Newt gets embroiled in this adventure. He starts to look a bit more like a hero. It's something that has implications for the whole wizarding world. Finally, as we had Eddie Redmayne and Dan Fogler in the studio, we decided to ask them about their ideal days in New York and in London. The film itself is set in New York, although it was entirely filmed in Watford. So the cast told us about what it was like to spend time in their home cities. It's, it's a magical film, magical um, time and place, I guess. But it's also set in, in the real world in New York, 19, 1920s New York. Mm -hmm. um, Dan, as a New Yorker yourself, I mean, what was it like walking around that city recreated on the screen? Oh, man. It was... It was so surreal because we were, my grandfather, my great-grandfather was a baker. He had, you know, Fogler's Pumpernickel. Really? Yeah, it was like the best Pumpernickel in lower Manhattan. And we were basically like shooting on the same streets. And, and oh my God, it was so beautiful just to be, just to, to be there. And, this, and, the, and they, they recreated half of New York. In Watford. <laughs> in in yeah, Watford. At the studio. So you could... You, they're on in between takes. Sometimes I walk around and get lost in the streets there. And you walk into a place, and it could it could just easily be the front of a store. But you walk in, and and it's a full restaurant. You know, it's it's just the ink. The, it's so intricate and just beautiful. It was amazing to just be part of that caliber. Mm -hmm. What would tips would you have for someone visiting New York? And are there any elements that you can still see from from the era uh, that you enjoy visiting? Oh yeah, I mean. Uh, one of my favorite places is uh, Central Park. You have to go there. 
and there's the zoo there, which would be a, an interesting connection to, to the movie. It'd be fun to walk around the park. And in connection to the, the parks he, uh, here in London, I mean, uh, the parks are so manicured and beautiful and, and delicious here. And, uh, so if you like parks, I'd definitely come to New York and uh, check out Central Park. You, you can get lost there. It's just vast. But uh, make sure you get to Brooklyn, yeah. uh, Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, you know, that area. There's just five minutes over the Brooklyn, walk over the Brooklyn Bridge. That's always wonderful. Eddie, London, if you, what would you advise these guys to do? First thing to do in London, um, if, you, if you have a day, what would you do? Uh, first thing, do you know what the first thing I would do is I would take a tube to Borough Market. And I'd go to Borough Market and then I'd walk all the way down the Thames, past the Globe Theatre, mm-hmm. past the National yeah. Theatre, maybe nip across to St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. And I would do basically that circuit on the Thames because I feel like it's yeah, something that's cool. changed in London over the past 15, 20 years. And, it's, and I think it, it's such a... There's so much going on there now. That's probably what I'd do. Now, whether you've already had your office Christmas party or still thinking of having some festive fun... The best way to get into it is by listening to our interview with the stars of the Office Christmas Party movie who give us their guide to having the best party of 2016. So, I've never been to an Office Christmas Party. I've been a freelancer for the last 15 years. Hmm. What can I expect from my Office Christmas Party? I think what you can expect is a little bit of an awkwardness because you work with these people who you don't really know and you sort of watch them pick up phones or distribute mail and then suddenly you see them in their sort of party finest or not. And you, um, and you meet who they really are. Exactly. Is that, so is that the basis of it? Have you been to office Christmas parties in the past, and is yeah. it all based on things that you may have seen? Well, it's amazing when you, when you say you're making a movie about an office Christmas party, how many stories come out of the woodwork. And, you know, we incorporated the good ones, and, and a lot of them made their way into the film. You know, it's, um, it's the one night a year when sort of insanity is allowed to enter the workplace, and it's... it's it's like Midsummer Night's Dream. Everybody goes out into the woods and comes back the next morning, and and, and they've learned something about each other, good or bad. So, you, you mentioned some of the the bad things that you heard, or some of the maybe more extreme stories. Was um, there anything that you couldn't put in there? Yeah, well, we had a, a friend who knew somebody who had brought a call girl to uh, to the party and tried to fob her off as his girlfriend and got exposed. So that's actually in there. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of things that we've heard that you can't put in there. Um, I don't think so. I think for the most part, we tried to fill it with everything we heard, um, and at, even as we were filming, yeah, we, we didn't pull any punches. Things. Yeah, it's all, it's all. I mean, it is completely out it there. Goes so, for it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that was that one of the intentions that you had? You yeah. Know, just to yeah. go for it and you know show everything. I yeah. Think. I mean, we wanted to make uh, a movie that was you know a, a, an R-rated comedy, obviously something that was big and funny and loud, but that also had heart and kind of. Uh, ultimately arrived at being a Christmas movie, and I think it balances both. But we certainly wanted to go for it, and and not. And the worst thing you can do is is make a movie about a party and and not deliver something outrageous. So we we had to go for it. How do you go about maintaining that festive spirit when there are things such as drugs, sex, violence going on all over the place? I think it's about the characters. I think if you, in any story, um, have an entry point and a relatability to who you're watching the movie about, um, you care about what happens to them. You have investments in them. So no matter how embarrassing it gets, no matter how much they drink, no matter how much they dance, no matter who they're confessing their love for, I think if you as an audience really attach into them early on... If you make them relatable, the audience will go there. And I think that was our goal, is to sort of 
root for these people in the midst of this mess so that by you really care as opposed to just watching an empty party movie about chaos? Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that um, it's the one time of year when people can really kind of let their hair down and, you know, really, really go for it. I get the same sort of feeling when you're watching an R-rated comedy as well. Is that, is that the essence? Is it the same spirit yeah. that you have? I think when you tell people that there aren't limits and you can really go for jokes and you can be dangerous and you can be funny in, a, in, a, in an adult way, I think it, it, you learn, you know, people have flavors and things you didn't quite know. Jen Aniston, Jason Bateman, people are willing to go to places because everybody around them is doing it, you know. So it, it, we wanted to kind of get that out of people, that kind of uh, danger and and also outrageousness. Mm-hmm. And I know you've worked with some of the actors before. So again, is it part of that process whereby you know what they what they're about and where how far they're willing to go that you can push the extreme? A little bit, but I think a lot of them surprised us in great ways. I mean, we tried to when they were all around each other, it was pretty infectious, and there was just an energy that built. And so there were things that. We didn't even know, you know, people were capable of that would come out of nowhere. A dance move, a way that they would sing a song, you know, the chemistry between two people that hadn't met before, because it's a pretty big ensemble. So I think it was a pretty fluid and open process. And um, even though we had expectations that they were all going to deliver and be funny, which they did, there were certainly lots of things and different surprised sort of, even yeah, us, that yeah. surprised us. Sure. Uh, one of the sequences that I wanted to talk about was the 3D printing sequence. Um, how did you come up with that? I mean, is that, again, maybe having new technology does allow for things to happen that maybe we haven't seen? Well, seen we, knew we, wanted, we knew we wanted to kind of hit a lot of the tropes of an office Christmas party, and one of them is obviously, you know, Xeroxing your, your whatever onto the machine. And we thought, well, that's been done and, and that's old. And so what's something like that? that employs new technology, and we thought, well, 3D printer. We also wanted to create a new tradition, which yeah. we did a lot in the movie. So, yeah, We're hoping this to be repeatable at Christmas parties next year. <laughs> um, the, the process of working together on a, on a film like this, uh, it must be helpful having someone there with you and, and maybe bouncing ideas off one another. Is that how it works? Yeah. I mean, we've worked together since university, so I think it's a pretty seamless process. And we also write together, so that's where most of our debate happens and then by the time we get on set things are pretty seamless and flowing mm-hmm. you mentioned that there were some things that you weren't expecting from the actors so mm-hmm. is there a lot of room for improvisation on your movies i mean there is i mean you want you don't want to get this many incredibly talented people and then just make them read the the same jokes over and over again and so we encourage improvisation and it was incredible there's a lot of different styles of of comedy coming from a lot of different actors some people like tj come out of uh, stand-up and Jen and Jason come out of TV, so they're more uh, classic and reverent to the script, but then encouraging them to improvise. And then really Kate McKinnon and Vanessa McKinnon. Bayer come from sketch. Yeah. So so we really tried to get a whole cross-section and, and keep it fluid on set. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming the film wasn't shot during the Christmas period, so how did you go about you know recreating the city to look like that and even getting that kind of atmosphere on set? It must have been difficult. Uh, a lot of visual effects, a lot of fake <laughs> snow. Um, we shot exteriors in Chicago. It was the end of sort of that winter season. It was March, uh, April, and we got really unbelievably lucky, um, and it snowed for the first time in March. months. Um, and so that was great, and then we sort of matched to that. And um, for the most part, when we were shooting on set, you know, we just gave people Christmas sweaters, even though it was the heat of you know, Atlanta in May and just said, there's air conditioning in that room, walk ahead and filmed accordingly. So we were able to sort of twist and subvert it, but it was difficult to get 
props for Christmas and yeah. lights for Christmas. And we learned that reindeer are nightmares. Um, they they become disgusting. They lose their horns, and they lose their hair, and that was difficult. Because <laughs> you see the reindeer is introduced by early, and then they yeah. kind of disappear. Was that part of the problem? That you no, we we went with it, but it was a lot of you know, fake fur and you know CG horns, and it was nightmare. Um, Christmas movies are, are a tradition. Um, have you got any favorites? And, and what is it about those films that appeal to you and have that spirit? I think we have a few favorites like everybody does. I think, you know, across the spectrum, A Christmas Story we love. Um, you know, love Elf. Elf, Miracle on 34th Street, Love, love Actually. Actually. So it's a pretty eclectic mix. But we definitely felt like we wanted to do an R-rated Christmas comedy, which you've never really seen, um, and have that join that classic you know, pack that you can repeat year after year and sort of still find something great in. Mm-hmm. So, Excellent. And finally, uh, I wanted to ask you about tips for the perfect Christmas party. What, what are the main things that you would advise people to either look out for or even conduct on a, on a Christmas party? I well, mean, I think for like any party, it comes down to lighting and music. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is maybe... Make strong drinks. Make strong drinks. And maybe don't give people enough, too much time to prepare because... The worst thing that can happen is a complete subversion of what you think somebody looks like when right. they show up at a Christmas party. Right. It's, it's sort of a good thing to just have it ease gently from the work day into the night. Mm-hmm. And any personal experiences that you guys remember from Christmas parties that you, you really enjoyed or maybe didn't enjoy? I think because we're director and writers, I think part of this was about the fantasy of the Christmas party we'd want to go to in an yeah. office versus having our own. I think we've been to you know some Hollywood parties at Christmas, which are a very different thing, and I think... You know, we felt like if we were going to throw an office Christmas party, this is what we'd like it to be. So I think the answer is we don't have firsthand experience, but now having shot that movie, we feel like we have. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And and, uh, one last word about the cast. Um, Amazing cast that you assembled for this. Um, Was it quite easy to get them involved in a project that is, like you say, pushing the extreme and R-rated? I mean, in hindsight, it seemed easy. I mean, it's, you know, it's always you get the first couple of people and then people want to work with those people, and then it builds ahead of steam. And, and we had a real murderer's row of talent in this movie. And so after a certain point, it, it did become easier, and people were like, wow, if, if, if you've got those people already, I'd love to be you know, part of it. But it was difficult to convince them that they only get to wear one outfit in the uh-huh. whole movie. Yeah, I guess that's the challenge of a film set on one night. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, yes, nice to meet you. Guys. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. Thanks for joining us on this pilot episode of the Screen Clipper podcast. We've been taking a look back at 2016 and be sure to join us in 2017 when we'll be taking a look at all the big film and TV events coming up. And we'll be starting with a special look at the Oscars. For more information, make sure you check out www.culturetrip.com and tune in and subscribe to iTunes. I've been Kasam Luj and until next year, goodbye.